You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 220. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com for our Your Stock, Our Take segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. Welcome, everyone. Looking forward to the show today. We're going to start off by discussing Keystone's recently released 2023 Electrification and Renewable Power Report. The report went out just this week and provides a review and analysis of companies at the forefront of the global transition towards electrification and renewable energy. We started by identifying 1,500 companies that were related to the electrification space and funneled that down to a very vetted list of profitable, growing businesses that pass most or all of our very stringent GARP growth at a reasonable price investment criteria. Afterwards, I'll be taking a look at Neighborly Pharmacy, symbol NBLY on the TSX. Neighborly is a recent entry to the stock market in as of 2022 and a consolidator of community pharmacies across Canada. We will be reviewing the company's strong Q1 results, which were just reported today, and also discussing the future prospects of the company for investors. Brett will be following up with a comparison of Mattel, symbol MAT, on the NASDAQ against SpinMaster, symbol TOY on the TSX. Both companies are leaders in the highly competitive toy industry. Brett will let you know how the fundamentals of each of these stocks stack up against the other, and also what all of this has to do with the new Barbie movie, which is generating such a buzz. Finally, Brennan will be looking at West Shore Terminals, symbol WTE on the TSX. Westshore operates a coal storage and loading terminal at Roberts Bank in British Columbia, but the company is also looking at expanding its operations into potash. Brennan will cover the overall fundamentals of the company, the the potential expansion into potash, uh, as well as how the current BC port strike is impacting the company. And Ryan will cover absolutely nothing because Ryan is not here. (laughs) Which already has the makings of a great uh, podcast episode. Do you do you not agree? I agree. Excellent. Best ever already. Yeah. No, Here Ryan is off on vacation and I, I, I can't be too hard on the guy because I've actually worked with Ryan for an embarrassingly long period of time. And I swear for the first 10 years that I knew him, he did not take a single vacation, not once. So good well, for him. Been, we will see he's him been calling me too. I mean, he's been calling all of us, you know, uh, while he's on vacation here he tried calling me or I, I spoke with him about three times today and every single time you know he asks okay you know how are things going what's going on in the office anything new or companies reporting mm-hmm. today and i you know our conversation goes about two minutes and then he loses internet connection and then he calls me yeah. back yeah. and then we yeah. talk see ryan doesn't call me because if he <laughs> called me i'd be like what are you doing get your, your holidays get back to your vacation have a drink yeah. like yeah yeah good yeah, good that's excellent funny. Um, so as well in, um, 
I guess first, I guess let's talk about the the electrification report. So we yeah, so that, that was big. We've been working on this for a couple of months, and obviously, huge themes. So electrification and renewable power, and that includes a lot of different sub themes, including uh, electric vehicles, battery charging, battery technology, even uh, rare earth metals mining and processing. So uh, quite a report. Uh, really happy that it's out an interesting space, starting with 1500 companies and then vetting that list down and um, just yeah. just went out yesterday to to clients. Yeah, it was interesting looking at the EV uh, industry as well. And just the statistics that we were pulling up on it where, you know, by 2030, um, I believe it's Ernst & Young is or 2032, uh, Ernst & Young is projecting that um, electric vehicles are going to pass internal combustion vehicle sales. Um, so it is crazy, you know, how fast mm -hmm. we have seen it grow from, you know, Tesla introducing basically the first EV, you know, that really got, uh, you know, I, I guess market adoption of people actually starting to purchase it in 2008 and to see where it's uh, come, where all of a sudden they've, you know, introduced um, affordable vehicles uh, at, you know, $40,000, $44,000 rather than, you know, that Roadster that came out at $100,000, which, you know, not many people were buying. Um, but yeah, you know, a lot of crazy growth themes in there. Um, you know, a lot of companies, of course, don't meet our criteria still um, mm -hmm. with this growth. You know, a lot of companies are are chasing it, but um, are lacking profitability. Um but yeah, yeah. So when a, we when we talk fifteen hundred companies initially, we we start off with everything, and then the first thing we want to see, of course, is is this a real business that's generating revenue, and ideally some level of profitability, or where we can see it transitioning into profitability. And Brett, you did a lot of that initial initial research yourself. So what percentage, if would you say we're just not even generating revenue? Uh Probably from I I I, I can't give you exact percentage on that, but we no no just the ballpark. Like. Yeah, probably about twenty thirty percent just weren't even giving okay. us revenue out of our initial screens for the sector, and then past that there were some which had such minuscule revenue. You cut out some of those, and then so far mm -hmm. with profitability or their balance sheet is so bad, and we we start about fifteen hundred, then we immediately cut out all those ones. We go but we went down to about five hundred or so. And then that's mm -hmm. where we start to look in. We go through the financials over the past year or two. And then we pulled out, I think, about, what was it, 40 of them in our total for the report, which we actually wrote reports on. We compared them. And as, okay. the, and as well, we wrote on about another 30 companies or so between the sectors of Brennan did EVs, I did uh, EV chargers, and then Aaron did renewable energies, and we did a uh, sector analysis on those as well as looking at some of the companies which they don't, aren't really near our uh Gartner motto at this time but those there's those companies which they have the growth but they just don't have the profitability yet and that's really where we mm -hmm. dove in we narrowed it down to those we had our bigger reports and we had those industry reports as well yeah i mean the irony is that a lot of the companies that really have no financial performance to speak of in terms of no revenue or almost no revenue or just massive net losses, these are often the companies that a lot of retail investors really gravitate towards, right? Because they drum up a lot of excitement. Um, and there's even like this thought in, you know, like the startup world or the speculative business world where it's like, well, you don't want to generate any revenue or profit, right? Because once you start generating revenue and profit, you're valued on the revenue and profit. 
Whereas if you literally just generate nothing, you can promise the sky. And that's basically what people are going to buy you for, right? But that that's that's where we would separate investing from speculation, right? I mean, an investment in a stock is at least at the very at a very minimum level as a company that you can perform some type of financial analysis on. And to do that, you need the company has to be producing some level of revenue, profitability, or at least you know operating income or or transitioning towards it. Um, whereas if you can't even do, I mean, if you're looking at a company that doesn't have any revenue is burning through a ton of cash, which is, you know, a very, like in a lot of these themes, like the, like the battery charging, the EV companies, uh, really across the board in the electrification theme, a lot of, as you said, Brett, probably like a third of the companies fit into just like the high, high speculative category. Um, but if you can't even do a financial analysis on it, you know, it's, it's, it's not an investment. It's, it's, it's a speculation, right? I mean, then you're just trusting what management says about what they will potentially be able to get in the future. You're just, you're following a story as, as opposed to investing in a company that certainly should have a good story, but should also have some solid concrete numbers to back it up. And that's what we're doing with the research is finding those companies. So you'd mentioned, Brett, about 40 companies in our, um, between current coverage or top tier monitor list, and then our additional monitor list. And then the other three sections where we were looking at sub subspaces of the electrification trend. So that was EVs, um, uh, EV charging and batteries. And then what were, what was my section, which was renewable power utilities. So when you're looking at my section anyways, these generally aren't speculative companies. These are generally utility companies, which are lower growth. But, you know, we looked, we pulled out about 15 utility companies across North America where renewable power is a major source of their uh, energy production and where they're looking to expand into the renewable space over the next several years. So that's yeah, quite a lot of work, but it was nice to, nice to get it out. Yeah. Like I think I did it. Well, I did do a table on um, EVs and of the 11 companies that I looked at, only three of them actually had cash flow. Uh, okay. A lot of them too, like you know, just to look like Neo Inc., which I know was a high flyer, and that's a, a China company, um, or, or based out of China. Um, they have crazy targets, or management came out with crazy targets um, of, I believe, about two hundred and forty thousand uh, vehicles in uh, this fiscal year. Well, for the second half of this fiscal year, they're going to have to do one hundred and eighty-five thousand vehicles to try to meet that. So it's just mm-hmm. you know, big lofty targets. Uh, still burning cash flow. Um, yeah, you know, a, a lot of that. But yeah, it was it was a fun report. I'm happy to get it out. And now uh, on to the next one. Yeah. And now it, what we have as well is we have, uh, we, we've done the groundwork. So now we have that top tier monitor list. And this is really the list of companies that we're looking at drawing new recommendations out from over the next, say, you know, two to six quarters. So yeah, you know, looking forward to following the space. It's an interesting theme. Yeah. So moving on. So, um, CDR plus recently came out. Um, what are your yeah, so thoughts just, on just, it? Just, just to like, you know, yeah. set the mood here. Um, I've been in the financial industry for, as an analyst primarily for about 20 years right now. And so I've been looking at CDR myself for 20 years and in 20 years, that platform. So CDR is where all of the public companies have to file their financial statements. And that's where an analyst as well can go and, and get financial statements directly from the source. So 
um, directly from the regulatory source. So income statement, cash flow, balance sheet, as well as other disclosure documents. So very important website for analysts and investors. It has not changed in 20 years until just recently. So the new one, CDAR Plus, was really excited to hear that they were going to modernize it because when you compare it to the US equivalent, which is Edgar, it's like a Ferrari versus a horse and carriage would basically (laughs) be like my best analogy, right? Like Edgar has, and for probably about a decade, set their site up so that you can access information in different formats. Um, You can access it through like an API. So you can do, you know, you can access it through your like computer code to make automated um, applications that use that. Whereas CDAR is just PDFs, which uh, for any developers are really limited to to work with. So I was really excited, but I'll just let you take it, Brennan, because you came out and... I was just going to say, um, I mean, we haven't really been having too much fun with it. Um, I know Brett's going to pop up a, a meme here that he ended up sending me, which I thought was pretty funny um, because I, I just find CDR Plus a little clunky now. And I almost wish we could go back to the old version just because, you know, especially like our chat sessions that we do with clients, when they ask us, a, a, you know, about a, a stock that's on the TSX, you know, it was so easy to go to CDR. Instantly, I could have all of the documents. Well, it's a lot slower, slower of a process, or at least at this point, you know, we're still learning, uh, the new, the new website. Um, but yeah, I've been finding it quite difficult to use just in the fact of, even if I do pull up a company, I'll pull up all of the financial statements that I want. I'll open up a few 20 minutes later, I'll come back to the same search page to try to open up another. And all of a sudden it gives me an error saying that I need to start the search over again which, you know, just adds time. So, you know, it's been kind of, uh, um, you know. What, what I was looking for hopefully would be like some type of an, an improvement, something that that followed more the model of US Edgar, where you could access it in different forms. Like there's a format called um, XML, which is really good for developers. If you want to create some type of an automated system to gather the information and do analysis on it, you can get it in HTML, you can get it in PDF, you can get it in text documents, right? Um, just much more modern system, right? And that's what I thought they were going towards. But it's like, it almost seems like the CDR Plus, at least that I have experienced so far, unless I'm missing something is they haven't made any improvement, at least for the end user, the reader of the reports, they're still just downloading PDFs, they just added a bunch of clunkiness, yeah. which makes it slower and harder to use. Exactly. Um, and it took them, you know, 20 years or more <laughs> to get to this point. And I'd imagine that, you know, they probably spent 10 times more than they should have to develop the system. So I know we're going to be stuck with this for the next 20 years, probably, <laughs> right? Where everybody else or, you know, other exchanges or regulatory bodies are kind of progressing with innovation. Uh, so I'm disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. The original CDAR was released in 97. So we got 26 years of this. So get yeah. used to it. <laughs> uh, yeah, we will get at least probably twenty of the next one, or say fifteen to twenty. Yeah, unreal. Okay. All right. Well, that's uh, all we need to say about that. So why don't we uh, why don't we get on to some companies here? So I'm going to talk about Neighborly Neighborly Pharmacy, uh, and this is a company that we've had several questions on from from clients in the past. Uh, and they just put out their their Q1 fiscal 2024 results. So 
I thought this would be a good time for us to do a little review of the business and figure out if it's something that needs to be put on our monitor list or even something that investors could could purchase. So let's get into this. Uh, Neighborly Pharmacy Inc., symbol NBLY on the TSX. It trades at $17. It's a $755 million market cap company. Uh, so what they do is they own a network of community pharmacies. That network is currently uh, 291 locations right now across Canada. This is up from 170 locations um, in 2017. Um, and the company just started trading actually publicly in 2021. Now, I actually think that um, uh, 2017 is actually, that may have been the correct number for 2017, but I think they only had 170 uh, a year ago as well, around the time that they went public. But um, over the past year here, the share price performance really hasn't been that great, um, hitting a year high of about $25, and then it's been a downward trend really uh, for most of this year. But as I said, the company did just put out their Q1 fiscal 2024 financial results. They got a good pop in the share price. Uh, so let's take a look at those results and see why. Uh, fantastic performance, uh, at least at face value here. Revenue in the first quarter up 72%, almost $200 million. Now, 95% of that growth was driven by acquisitions, um, but there was 4.1% same-store sales growth as well. Um, the the prescription sales um, were actually about flat in terms of volume. So it looks to me like that same store sales growth probably was more about pricing. Um, but anyways, adjusted EBITDA, EBITDA increased uh, 77% to just under $20 million. They successfully closed two previously announced acquisitions in late June, um, bringing the number of locations up to 291 Adjusted earnings per share, 11 cents compared to 9 cents last year. And they also put out their pro forma. Um, so essentially what they think their run rate revenue in EBITDA is right now post acquisition. And that would be 882 million in revenue and 97 million in EBITDA. So looking at the 2023 results, um, mostly good news as well. 72% growth in revenue to 750 million. Same store sales growth of 2.9%. Although same-store prescription growth actually declined uh, during the year, down 1.2%. So this is what I mean about if they're if they're selling less volume, then I'm this must be primarily about pricing as opposed to volume. Um, adjusted EBITDA up 73% to just under 80 million. Adjusted EPS of 45 cents compared to 38 cents in the first quarter of 2023. So if we look at the growth strategy of this company, what it seems to be is really highly focused on acquisition. Uh, there has been some same store sales growth, as we noted, um, but primarily this looks to be an acquisition uh, consol a consolidator, uh, an industry consolidator. So um, they have referenced the fact that there's 6,500 independently owned pharmacies in Canada. And their main focus is to is to consolidate. So we've looked at consolidators in the past. It can be a risky business depending on how um, effective the company is at sourcing the acquisitions, paying the right price. But one example of a great consolidator uh, is Boyd Group, one of the top recommendations of Keystones, but one of the top performers uh, in Canada over the last 15 years just across the market. And they were a consolidator of auto body repair and glass repair shops. So um that's certainly something, you know, we always like to repeat that model. Um, so when we're looking at a company that has 
you know, a fragmented industry, they're in a position to make acquisitions. They're able to integrate those acquisitions accretively. That's something we pay attention to. Um, and we want to know if, if that's something that, that they can repeat. The main risk, of course, is overpaying for the acquisitions. Uh, taking a look at the balance sheet, because of course, this is going to be a very important part of a uh, growth by acquisition company's um, strategy is how strong is your balance sheet? A lot of these companies are going to use debt in order to make these acquisitions or use a lot of debt, especially if their share price um, is at a low valuation. So in the case of Neighborly Pharmacy, um, total debt of just over 300 million, at, that's net debt to EBITDA of 2.9 times. You know, given that this is a brick and mortar business, we would expect to have some level of debt leverage. They are pushing up against the higher end of what we consider to be our target range for debt to EBITDA. I don't think that it's, um, you know, necessarily extre an extremely over leveraged balance sheet at this point. But, you know, we would probably be looking more into the two to two and a half times. And certainly if we started to get up into the three to four times, that's that's a lot of debt for them to handle. And then, of course, valuation. So based on, we're basing our valuation here on the company's pro forma adjusted EBITDA, which is $97 million. Um, and then also the trailing earnings per share, which is $0.47. Cents. So looking forward, there should be some growth to, to the earnings. But um, based on these numbers, uh, enterprise, enterprise value to EBITDA of 11 times and price to earnings or adjusted earnings of 36 times. So it's not trading a discount. In fact, relative to earnings, it's trading at a premium, uh, which indicates to us that, you know, a lot of that good news and expectation is baked into the stock. But of course, you know, when they're putting out numbers like 76% revenue growth and adjusted EBITDA growth, um, oftentimes companies are going to pay at a premium. The question is, can they, can they continue that? Um, the same store sales growth is not necessarily that impressive. It's reasonable. Um, but it's it's the same store sales growth itself does not justify a 36 times earnings multiple. Uh, so our take is, you know, financially, this looks to be a primarily a, a strong business in terms of revenue and earnings growth. And we like the potential of their consolidation strategy of pharmacies across Canada. Of course, pharmacies are, you know, they're they're a staple business. Um so you, we would expect them as long as they're making wise acquisitions in the right markets to be buying companies that have stable cash flow and it's a profitable company. So that's, that's great. They have been able to so far anyways, in their very short history, um, show good profitability, but, uh, the dependence on acquisitions for growth is, is a little bit of a red flag for us. Uh, it's not that growing by acquisitions is a bad thing. It's just, it's a more of a risky strategy as opposed to companies that have a lot of internal growth, like just being able to invest in their own businesses for organic or non-acquisition growth. Uh, the balance sheet leverage at the high end of the target range. So, you know, if we were looking at a company with really low leverage on the balance sheet and we were saying, you know, they have a lot of capacity to add debt to make acquisitions, that would be better. But they already look like they're they're pushing up against the higher end there. There is that limited track record. They have not been public for very long. Um, and then the premium valuation to earnings. So I think it's a very interesting business. I'm not running out to buy it right now. We're just going to continue to monitor it. It's just been around for a short period of time. Let's see a couple more quarters. Let's see if they can continue with the acquisitions. Certainly looking at the share price momentum, which has been mostly negative over, over um, the course of this year, it doesn't seem like there's a huge hurry to, to jump in with, uh, with a sizable position.
Yeah, like on a business like this, like I wonder if they are thinking about doing a private placement or, you know, a, an equity offering soon to just get some of that debt down so then they can continue, you know, or maybe even just they raise some equity to continue to make acquisitions. Like I think I was just looking here, their last um, equity offering was a private placement um, in April of 2022, I believe. I, I think, you know, just quickly looking at their news releases. Um, so it will be interesting seeing now that their debt is high. Uh, are getting up there uh, to see if that's something that they will be doing. And, you know, that private placement that they did, uh, they issued shares at about $29 or just under $29. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, it is good that they raised up at, uh, you know, elevated prices, clearly, um, compared to where they are now. So that is that is uh, a good thing. But yeah, we'll see if they continue to uh, have to dilute. Uh, just to add in on the balance sheet, the debt is all variable. It's so they are going to be a bit pressured from the heightened interest rate mm. environment as well. Yep. And the other thing, yep. which I'm a bit surprised because they are doing this heavy acquisition strategy, they do have a dividend. It's not that big. It's a 1.4% yield. But do you mm -hmm. think it, they might prefer to put the cash back into either the company to their further acquisitions? Because normally that does produce a, if they do believe in the business, and obviously they do, normally that does produce a higher capital return over just handing it back to shareholders for the time being. That's a good point. No, I mean, and that's that's both of those are really good points. Um, I personally think that if you're if if you're already have debt on your balance sheet, you're you're consolidating an industry. You need as much cash as you can get. And to me, a one point two percent yield. I mean, it's it's almost insignificant. It's not quite insignificant. Mm -hmm. I really to to consider something a real income stock for our for our dividend stock research, we're looking for yields of 2% or higher. And even 2% isn't really that much, right? So, you know, 1.2%, that's fine. I think a lot of these companies, they just put out, because there's companies that have yields of less than 1%. A lot of times they'll do that just so that they can get on um, uh, like indexes that are focused on income producers and then also be uh, purchasable by say funds that have a mandate to only invest in companies that, that pay dividends. So. You know, and I should add too that, you know, using your shares as, um, you know, basically capital or, or using them as currency, you know, that again, like, you know, we've talked about it many times that can be a good strategy. It is much harder, uh, you know, than just, you know, growing organically. Um, but, you know, again, it, it can work. I'm not saying if they dilute, it's the end of the world. Um, but again, they just have to make sure that well, they're, they're trading at 36 times earnings, right? So that's yeah. at least it's, 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 they're getting a good value exactly for the shares that they, and that that's kind of the, the give and take when you're looking at a company. I mean, as an investor purchasing shares, you want to buy it at the lowest at the lowest valuation possible. But if a company is trading at a low valuation, they're not in a position then to use their shares to invest in growth, right? Because it's too expensive. Right. Exactly. I mean, they're, they're selling shares at a low valuation. But if you're if like, so, for example, if you're, you know, trading at a valuation of 20 times earnings and you're buying acquisitions at a valuation of 10 times earnings, then that's a great a creative investment potentially. But if you're trading at 10 times earnings and you're trying to buy something at 20 times earnings, there's no accretion there. Um, you'll add earnings, but on a per share basis, um, your earnings will actually decline. And that's, you know. That that is a major red flag when we see that from a company. If lot, some companies do just focus on growing the revenue, growing the overall EBITDA, we want to see per share growth. Yep. Yep. Good. 
So I think we're going to get to Brett. Brett, you are going to do a segment on the Barbie movie. Um, and then maybe talk a little bit about uh, comparing Mattel and Spin Master. Yes, we were doing a movie review this time around. In uh, one of our weekly chats, we got a question really asking for a comparison between Mattel, symbol M-A-T on the NASDAQ, and Spin Master, symbol TOY, or T-O-Y on the TSX, as both are children's entertainment companies. Mattel's significant brands include Barbie, Hot Wheels, and Fisher-Price and Thomas & Friends. Spin Master major brands include Paw Patrol's Brennan's Favorite, as well as Kinetic Sand, Air, Hogs, Rubik's Cubes, Etch-A-Sketch, and Orbeez. The question was really asked due to the recent success of Mattel's Barbie movie, which has earned over 77 775 million globally in ticket sales. However, Mattel doesn't receive very much from these actual ticket sales. They receive their lion's share of what their benefit would be from the toy sales, which will not be in this most recent quarter, which they just reported a couple of days ago. It will be in the next quarter, Q3. But looking at the recently reported Q2 numbers ending June 30th before the movie premiere, Barbie sales were just not hot. Looking specifically at Barbie's, Barbie sales, they declined 6% year over year to $283 million from $301 million for the quarter, with a greater decline of 23% for the first six months of the year. Just not doing great leading up to the movie. So it was really dragging its feet compared to the prior year. Mattel does believe it has set itself up, though, to achieve its full year guidance of $900 to about $950 million in adjusted EBITDA for the year, which is announced or they guided at the start of the year so they're still doing good they're not didn't raise their guidance so obviously they're not seeing super heightened uh sales of barbie toys within the first it will be about two weeks after the uh, or a week probably closer uh from the movie's release and the initial earnings call for q2 but let's compare mattel and spin master spin master has not reported their q2 at the time of us recording it does later this week so the numbers are a bit more someone tells uh, data is a bit more up to date, but we'll look at the previous full years as well. Both companies really do experience heavy seasonality with stronger sales in the second half of the year due to the holiday season. And as well, both companies have had a relatively poor Q4 2022 and had a poor Q1 2023, as the industry just saw previous overstocking of the toys and as well as weakening macroeconomic environment. Mattel has a market gap of $7.5 billion and converting to US dollars for Spin Master as they are listed on a Canadian exchange. They have a market cap of 2.7 billion US, so just over about a third of the size of Mattel. For 2022, Mattel had sales of 5.4 billion versus Spin Masters 2 billion, adjusted EBITDA of 968 million and 930 or 389 million, and EPS of $1.10 versus 245 for Mattel and Spin Master, respectively. Mattel had a PE of 33 times trailing, whereas Spin Master had a significantly lower valuation of 13 times. However, as I mentioned before, Spin Master is a quarter behind and it's likely to be a bit worse of a quarter than the previous year. So the valuation likely is going to be going up later in this week, but it's still going to be far cheaper than Mattel on this basis, as well as other valuation metrics, which I'm not going to ramble through here. They are significantly cheaper on cash flow, EBITDA, and so on. Comparing their balance sheets, though, Spin Masters is clearly superior with a net cash position of about half a billion dollars compared to Mattel's net debt of $2.3 billion, resulting in about a net debt leverage ratio about three times. The debt is at least fixed with the next maturity not until 2026, so the company isn't immediately impacted by these higher interest rates. While we're not going to be investors in either of these companies at this time, if you really are compelled to buy one of these two companies, Spin Master does look to be the better choice as they just have a better balance sheet 
in these uncertain macroeconomic times, it does seem like they're seeing a bit better into the commentary that they had for their Q3. But they are still seeing macro weakness at this time. Year over year, they're guiding for their EBITDA to be effectively flat and that'll be about the same for the last two years. But it's been mastered with this far superior balance sheet and is significantly lower valuation just seems like the better option between the two. Mattel, they may see a Barbie boost in the second half of the year, but it's unlikely to last farther in the future. Since most of the time with these toy companies, the sales are very quarterly and they just will fizzle out by the next time next year, next holiday season. So the short-term impact would just not be a significant increase to make Mattel be more attractive than Spin Master. And I'll open up to you guys if you have any comments on uh, the Barbie movie. Yeah, I think that Mattel, I mean, it's Mattel is a diversified company. It's, you know, at best, they're going to have a small increase in sales from the Barbie movie, but then consumers just move on to the next thing uh, and they forget about it. So, you know, it might help them. I don't know what percentage of of their total revenue Barbie accounts for. I can't imagine it's 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 a substantial amount, but it might help them if they wanted to rebrand the whole Barbie thing. But uh, it was about thirty percent in. Oh, it was about thirty percent. Okay, okay. Yeah, so that's maybe actually a bit less than that. About twenty five, actually, close to twenty five. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's actually that's actually pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Um. But again, I mean, at, at best, you're getting a short-term move up, you know, unless they're using this as like part of their their rebranding strategy. Um, although Spin Master, you know, looking at Spin Master, I remember several years back when it first came out to the market. I mean, it was an incredibly popular stock. They had a couple of hit toys. Um, they they were trading at a premium valuation as well. I mean, we'd looked at them several times and we thought that they were too expensive. But the challenge for us as well was just that, you know, that it was... it. Their, their financial success really revolved around a couple of, of real hit toys. Um, and now to see it down 13 times earnings, you had it, it's, it's actually looks pretty good net cash business. I would say, you know, it looks almost like a value play, but really hard to, to tell in terms of, you know, like what, what, what are the, what are the next run of, of toys going to, going to look like, yeah. like what's the reception going to exactly. be? So they're only, it's the, not, it's not something you can really toy. forecast going out several years yeah and we ended up covering the stock i ended up writing a report on them just a monitor report in our uh, cash rich uh canadian cash rich report i guess at the beginning of this year and yeah that's exactly what we came to say you know like historically the, the historical the historical trailing price to earnings multiple has usually been about 25 times earnings so you know it is at a discount right now um you know it's got that nice cash rich balance sheet uh, they do pay a dividend. Again, as we just said in the last segment, realistically, the yield is, you know, quite insignificant, but still, at least they are paying a, a yield. Um, but again, you know, they're only as good as their next toy. Um, I know that, uh, like in my report here, um, the sequel of the Paw Patrol movie is coming in late 2023. So, you know, investors are looking forward to that. Um, I have a niece now and uh, she loves Paw Patrol. You know, she's got it on her shovels, on everything, basically. And uh, she's not saying many words, but uh, she can definitely look down and, you know, we'll be in the middle of building sandcastles and she'll point at the, at you know, the bucket, Paw Patrol, <laughs> you know. So uh, I, I definitely can see, um, you know, how, how kids love it. Um, and then as well, like, uh, like there was the show The Last of Us that recently came out. I don't know if you guys ended up watching it. I ended up watching I did. it and, and yeah. liking it. Um, so Spin Master is actually coming out with a line of toys for, 
um, The Last of Us and God of War and, you know, basically along with PlayStation. Like zombie toys. Um, I don't know if it'll be zombie toys, but it will be like like action figures, from my understanding. Um, so they're planning on releasing those um, in the spring of 2024, from my understanding, or the beginning mm-hmm. of 2024. Um, so, I mean, there are some growth drivers there, but again, it's how do you forecast, you know, uh, I'll say it again, they're only as good as their next best toy. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's very difficult. But like Aaron was saying, you know, it, it does look like a bit of a value play at this point. Great. Okay. Well, we are going to hear from Brennan now. So yes, West Shore Terminals. Um, this actually came in from a client, Doug, and he says, what are your thoughts on West Shore Terminals? BC's Warren Buffett owns a lot. Uh, they've been onshoring and future commodities all flow through the Western ports. He says that labor issues are a potential issue. And he says, this is for you, Brennan, just to show how valued your clients think of you. Uh, so I don't know if you actually think of me highly or you're just saying that to get me to cover your stock. Either way, Doug, you know, g- good one. You know, you, <laughs> you're getting me to cover it. So I love it. Um, so, yeah. So West Shore Terminals uh, Investment Corporation, they're currently trading at a price of about $30.24, a market cap of about $1.9 billion, and a forward dividend yield of about 4.6%. So the company operates a coal storage and loading terminal uh, at Roberts Bank, British Columbia, uh, which is the largest coal loading facility on the West Coast of the Americas. And revenue is derived from rates charged for loading coal onto seagoing vessels. And the coal is delivered uh, to the terminal in trains and then unloaded and transferred onto a ship and shipped to multiple countries across the world with the majority heading to Japan, uh, Korea and China. So a few company updates here. Now, West Shore has commenced significant capital additions uh, to the terminal uh, to allow it to handle potash for BHP's Janssen potash mine in Saskatchewan. My cousin actually works uh, at the Janssen potash mine. Uh, So West Shore's management has indicated that the potash project is progressing well and continues to be on schedule and on budget. Now, the construction phase will take approximately four years, and West Shore expects to start handling potash in 2026, with phase one providing enough capacity for 4.5 million tons of potash shipped through the terminal annually. Um, However, this is expected to reduce the capacity of its coal shipments, and there are additional phases, but there's been no timeline provided uh, of when these phases uh, would start to commence. Of course, they're focusing on phase one, and they're only going to be fo- uh, you know, handling potash in 2026. Now, number two, uh, in September of 2022, West Shore received a 72-hour strike notice from local 502 International Longshore and Warehouse Union, or ILWU. And the company made a tentative agreement with 502 and work continued, but labor negotiations with ILWU locals uh, 514 and 517 are currently underway with management say, stating in their MDNA uh, that the potential talks will conclude successfully as early as the end of Q2 uh, of this year. But we will see if that actually happens. And just a side note here too, 
What I believe Doug is referring to by the Warren Buffett of BC buying shares is that Jim Pattison's Great Pacific Capital has been buying in the open market at a price of around $31, with the company now owning about 17.4 million shares of West Shore's 62 million shares outstanding, which I believe is about 28%. Now, looking at the financials, uh, for Q1 of 2023, revenue came in at 96.7 million, an increase of 9.5%, driven by an increase in tonnage to 6.9 million tons of coal. Earnings per share was up 29% to 53 cents per share, uh, driven again primarily by an increase uh, in revenue and that tonnage. The balance sheet has about 139.4 million in cash with no debt. Uh, but if we do include its leases, it has a net debt uh, and lease position of approximately 140 million. And right now, the stock is trading uh, with a PE of about 26 times. But this is due to the strike at the end of last year, which brought revenue and EPS down substantially. So if we look at more normalized times, I would say the valuation is closer to about 17 times earnings. And just to put this into perspective, the stock has a median PE ratio, a five-year median uh, PE ratio of about 12.5 times. So it continues to trade above its historical valuation. And management did provide uh, 2023 throughput guidance volumes, which are expected to be approximately 26.5 million tons, which is an increase of about 13.7% from 23.3 million in 2022 with an average loading charge of approximately $13 per ton for this year, uh, compared to about $12 per ton for 2022. Um, I, I guess I'll just quickly show here too, where you can see Q3 and Q4 uh, were impacted again uh, by um, the strike. So I did just want to quickly show the volatility in annual revenue in EPS over time. Uh, so as you can see here, there really hasn't been consistent growth. And to go to my conclusion, uh, long-term revenue and EPS have been volatile with a revenue compound annual growth rate of negative 0.2% from 2013 to 2022. Now the stock does have an attractive yield of 4.6% and a 12 trailing month payout ratio of about 110%. However, it's closer to about 76% if we normalized uh, their earnings without the labor strike. And the company has also paid some large special dividends in the past uh, of about $1.50 per share. And the last one that they paid was in March of 2022. Now, the company is diversifying operations to include potash by 2026, which is a positive, of course. You know, we're moving away from the coal. Uh, they've got a good balance sheet, um, a normalized PE of about 17 times, which remains above the historical median of 12 and a half times. And risks include continued uh, labor interruptions, potential commodity risk, and operational risk um, with you know expanding their potash operations. So uh, the company is expecting to have a good fiscal year with easy comparables to fiscal year 2022 because of the labor strike, which brought down revenue and EPS in Q4 and Q3 of 2022. But overall, you know, for the dividend, I think that the stock is reasonable and most likely why Jim Pattison has been buying it. Um, but for the lack of growth, exposure to coal and commodities, potential labor disruptions, and a valuation that remains above its historical median, it is not a business which we would recommend. And that's it. Right. That's all. Yeah. I mean, it 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 is a nice dividend there, four and a half percent. And then I did yeah. note I I took a look at the the growth over the last couple of years, and they have been moving that dividend up. Although based, you know, relative to 
taking into account the the historical earnings, I imagine that the payout ratio has been moving up as well. Um, yeah, I'm seeing a trailing 12 month payout ratio of 110%. So yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, one thing I will note is that uh, I did just do a little, a little research on the side there and um, they primarily ship uh, metallurgical coal, which is used in steel making. Um, they do do some thermal coal, uh, which is used in, in electricity production, but you know, in the, in the context of phasing out coal, um, that's typically, uh, from my understanding, thermal coal. Um, whereas metallurgical coal is uh, is still a required uh, ingredient in the steel making process, so it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that I've always thought in the past is that it it, it doesn't have that growth outlook that I want. Like, obviously, there's some cyclicality in the business. Revenues and earnings have moved up and down. It's it's always had a nice yield, but you know, you want to see like some type of capacity expansion or acquisition opportunity, some way to generate sustainable growth over time. Maybe this expansion into potash is a way to do it. Um, but of course, we're going to have to wait till 2026 to, to find out. Yeah, exactly. And like I was reading further just on, you know, Jim Pattison's uh, um, company, basically, or Great Pacific Capital, you know, investing. And, you know, they've been a shareholder for a very long time, from my understanding. And uh, I was reading articles where they were saying that he actually has, you know, from from where he's been purchasing the stock over, you know, all the years, he has like a, a weighted or a, an effective yield, a weighted average effective yield of about uh, 10%. So, you know, mm-hmm. on that capital that he's investing, he's making a great yield, you know, without mm-hmm. the growth in the business. So again, I think that that's probably primarily why they are investing. Um, I don't know for sure, obviously, um, but that would be my assumption. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, interesting business. Okay. Good. Okay. Well, I think that that is going to wrap it up for now. Thank you all for watching. Um, as always, rate us, review us on, on iTunes, on YouTube as well. Uh, if there's anything that I said that you liked or anything that Brandon and Brett said that you didn't like, we'd love to hear your comments. <laughs> So please post it. something in, in YouTube. Uh, give us a like if you want to, if you, if you enjoyed the content. Um, but we will, uh, we will see you next week. So bye for now and profitable investing. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening.